We now continue the book, The Atonement, by Arthur W. Pink. In chapter 16, The Atonement, Its Results Continued. To affirm that the suffering of Christ was all the divine justice required in order to redeem his people is blankly to deny the force and teaching of many scriptures. For example, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, Romans 5.19. Just as light and heat are always united in the sun, so the righteousness of Christ's life and the efficacy of his death are co-joined in our justification. The blood of Christ ought never to be thought of as independent of or detached from his life of obedience. It was their united value which purchased our redemption. In their agency they were inseparable though our, in our mediation indistinguishable. Christ yielded perfect obedience to the perceptive part of the law and full satisfaction to his penal on purpose that the merit of all might be made over to them who believe. This is the distinguishing glory of the gospel, the blessed truth of free justification through the righteousness of Christ. Just as God transferred the guilt of his people to Christ, so does he transfer his obedience to them. Christ has not only made us accepted, but acceptable to God, Hebrew 10.19, accepted because acceptable. Section B is necessity. The claims of God's holy government in relation to man were made known at Sinai. There he promulgated his law, a law whose claims cannot be remitted or lowered because they are founded on his own essential and unchanging holiness. The great mandatory commandment of the law is, Thou shalt love God perfectly and manifest that love in thought and action perfectly and always. The great prohibitory commandment is, Thou shalt not covet, Romans 7, 7. That is, thou shalt not desire anything of evil, anything that is forbidden by God. The law pronounced blessing and eternal life on any who should keep it, but it pronounced curse and judgment on all who should violate it even once, if only in thought. Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, Galatians 3.10. From Mount Gerizim was pronounced the blessing, from evil the curse. The law cannot remit or lower its claims, for its claims are founded on the essential unchanging holiness of God. And the law, having been promulgated, must be fulfilled. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, Till all be fulfilled. Matthew 5.18 The law demanded, one, the absence of all willful transgression. Two, the absence of sins of ignorance. Three, perfection in the inner man. Four, perfectness of developed character in unreserved and unremitted devotedness to God. But we naturally have none of these things. Instead of being without willful transgressions and without sins of ignorance, in both we abound, Instead of of perfections in the inner man, unfathomable depths of corruption are therein. Instead of perfectness of character, the things that ought to be absent are present, and the things that ought to be present are absent. Instead of being unreservedly devoted to God, we are unreservedly devoted to ourselves. Such is our condition. And all this moral leprosy has come upon us as a result of the fall. It is a result of Adam's first sin, for with him we had, by God's appointment, a legal oneness. He sinned, and his transgression brought upon him and upon us judgment unto condemnation. One of the first and chief results of that judgment being the presence and dominance in us of indwelling sin, whereby all power of doing good is supplanted by the abiding presence of energetic evil. Who can tell the 
thrill of anguish and horror that must come on the soul when in eternity it too late discovers the truth of these things. We are thus shut up unto utter hopelessness. We find ourselves heirs of wrath, strong for evil, powerless for good. The law worketh wrath. If there had been a law which could have given life, but Scripture hath concluded all under sin. Galatians 3, 21, 22. The law can stir up the workings of sin within us. It can work all manner of concupiscence, Romans 7, but it cannot deliver from those workings. The law entered that the offense might abound, but the law is the knowledge of sin. It is the prerogative of God alone to determine, and by his law to make known unto us what is and what is not sin. Man is full of sin, yet he knows it not. I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, parenthesis, concupiscence, or desire, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, Romans 7, 7. In our flesh there is nothing but evil desire. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and that evil desire is sin. Men refuse to acknowledge this. Willful disobedience is the only form of sin they recognize. There never could have been any hope for such as we if God in the infinitude of his grace had not been pleased to declare that his holy courts admitted the principle of substitutionary service. For he announces that he has appointed for all who are of faith a surety or sponsor, who undertaking all their responsibilities is their alter ego, their other self, and accepted in their stead all that is needed to supply a vital and sure title of life and glory. Parenthesis from Atonement Saveth by W.B. Newton. Here then was the desperate need. The law could not abate its demand. Flawless and continuous obedience. We have no ability to meet its demand. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 sounds the doom of the most punctilious moralist equally as it does the most abandoned prolificate. Therefore, if ever rebellious and guilty criminals were to be saved, it could only be by another assuming their responsibilities and satisfying the law in their stead. This brings us to consider C. Its procurements. Atonement saveth. The truth expressed by these words is the greatest keystone of our hopes for time and eternity. Atonement brings to all those who are under it, parenthesis, not salvability, but salvation. All who are the family of faith are under it. What then do we mean by atonement? Atonement or appeasement is the priestly work of the Lord Jesus directed toward God, whereby by one obligation finished on the cross, he has settled forever the claims of the divine government and procured for all his believing people not only pardon, but acceptableness and rewardableness according to the value of his own meritorious obedience, which has been presented to God and accepted by God for them. The Eternal Son voluntarily undertook to be the sponsor of his people. Humbling himself to be born of a woman and made under the law, parenthesis, that so he might fulfill the law, he formally assumed the responsibilities of all the family of faith, engaging to do everything and to suffer everything that was necessary Godward in order to deliver them from wrath and secure to them an inalienable title to life and glory. His appointment to this suretyship was founded upon the justice of God, which required that all sin must be punished, and it was founded also on the love of God, which determined not only to deliver from wrath, but to bring also to his own bosom and into his glory those who personally deserved wrath. It was necessary, therefore, that the substitute should, in the stead of his people, parenthesis, even all who should believe, 
meet every requirement of God's law which demanded perfectness of obedient service, and likewise that he should bear all the penalties appointed to him as the substitute because of our disobedience, for we owe unto God a double debt, a debt of obedience, and because of failure in that, a debt of penal suffering. Both must be paid. The penalty must be borne, and the perfect obedience rendered, otherwise there could be no atonement, and in consequence, no salvation. Written to W.B. Newton, and his atonement saveth. The above quotation contains a succinct statement upon this important aspect of our theme. In seeking to amplify it a little, let us emphasize the fact that when the Beloved of the Father became surety for us insolvent wretches, he made himself subject to the whole law of God. Though his threatenings were set in terrible array, and though its commands preemptorily insisted on the very perfection of obedience, he asked for no mitigation of its severity, nor any abasement of his demands, but instead with full but joyous submission to the judge of all, he cried, and lo, I come, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Psalms 47 and 8. Yes, come to pay the othermost farthing of their debt and to perform every jot and tittle of their duty. That perfect righteousness imputed to them, which is the ground upon which God justifies believing sinners, was in, inaugurated when God sent forth his Son to be born under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. It was perpetuated throughout the whole course of the Savior's life when he did always those things which pleased the Father, John 8.29. It was consummated when Emmanuel bowed his blessed head and cried with a triumphant voice, It is finished, John 19.30. Let us examine this in further detail. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 3, and 4. The last clause quoted states the ultimate end God had in view, parenthesis, so far as his elect were concerned, in sending his Son here, namely, that the righteousness of the law, its holy and just demand, should be fulfilled for us in the person of our representative, so that in the accounting of God they had themselves fulfilled it. Righteousness is a judicial term and refers not to a state of mind or disposition of the heart, but instead to a legal status before the tribunal of God. The righteousness of the law signifies the full answering of all the requirements of the law coming up to a perfect conformity to it, and that by doing all it enjoins. It is this alone which gives title to enjoy its reward, namely life everlasting. The righteousness of the law was and is fulfilled in us as we were and are viewed in Christ. Just as verse 1 affirms, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now in order for this righteousness to be wrought out for us by Christ, it was necessary that he should first be made under the law, Galatians 4.4. Christ was holy and righteous, not as a private person, not for himself alone, but for us sinners in our justification written by our Haldine. Yet at this point, great caution needs to be exercised, lest we sully the honor and glory of the Mediator. There have been those who most erroneously affirm that when the Son of God became incarnate, it was obligatory upon him to fulfill the law, that as man this was his personal duty. Not so. Had that been the case, his obedience had been of such a character that its merit could not have been imputed to others, for he would merely have been paying his own creature debt to the law. Such is horrible blasphemy, proceeding from an altogether inadequate and faulty view of our Lord's manhood. 
as this era is now so fearfully prevalent even in circles where few would expect to find it something further needs to be said in order to its refutation the manhood of Christ never had an existence separate from the Godhead of the Son when the word became flesh John 1.14 the second person of the adorable trinity took into union with himself an immaculate human nature consisting of spirit, soul, and body we say an immaculate human nature for it was not a human person instead it was a divine person who assumed that human nature carefully has the Holy Spirit guarded this very point in Luke 135 for it was said unto Mary that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God so denominated because that just as when a woman is united to a man in marriage she takes his name so the humanity of the Savior being taken unto union with the second person of the Trinity is called the Son of God thus because the holy manhood of the Redeemer became a part of the person of the Lord of glory he was not only exempted from the common condemnation of all other men parenthesis inherit sin as a result of the fall but he was not obligated to be in subjection to the law as all other men are let it be said with all possible emphasis that it was not as a private person but as the public and official representative of his people that the God man was made under the law it was purely a voluntary act on his part and in no sense compulsory therefore was his obedience infinitely meritorious and capable of being imputed to his people true his being subject to the law and meeting its very requirements have been proposed to him by the father in the everlasting covenant yet it must be expressly insisted upon that it was by his own free consent that those terms were accepted by him it was for the sake of his people and not for himself that he became under the law even after he had become incarnate the savior explicitly declared the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28, and if Lord of the Sabbath, therefore Lord of the whole law. The law had no claims upon him. That obedience which he rendered to it was entirely voluntary, free, and on behalf of and in the stead of his insolvent people. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, Philippians 2.8. Weigh well these momentous words and stand in awe at the amazing phenomena which they present. Who humbled himself? none other than the maker of heaven and earth when did he humble himself first when he left the glory of heaven and entered into the virgin's womb unparalleled stoop was this unprecedented condescension was that but more having assumed human nature unto himself he humbled himself still farther and became obedient notice the active rather than the passive voice it is not he was humbled but he humbled himself it was an act of his own a voluntary act not a duty compulsorily laid down upon him he became obedient why to render to God and his law that perfect service which was required in order to our being parenthesis legally made righteous but not until we rightly estimate the surpassing dignity and excellency of surety's person shall we be able to value aright the worth of his obedience think of those whose obedience it is the obedience of Christ, obedience to him who walketh in the circuit of the skies, Job 22:14, and all the kingdoms of the world are reputed as nothing before him. The obedience of him who doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, Daniel 4:35. The obedience of him who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1:8. 
Doubtless such obedience must be deserving of all that grace and glory which are and will be communicated to his people in every period of time and throughout all ages of eternity. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. No wonder that such obedience shall justify the ungodly, Romans 4, 5, should make us poor fallen creatures righteous, perfectly righteous in the sight of God, without the concurrence of any good works or any holy duties of our own. The infinitely most noble obedience of Jesus Christ to this obedience I would have our thoughts continually directed. This surpasses the service of both angels and men in all their various and wonderful orders. Tis true, compared with our duties, Abraham's obedience is like Saul's statue, who from his shoulders upward was higher than any of the people. But when the righteousness of Christ comes into view, it is somewhat like that magnificent personage described in Revelation 10. Should a sublime and majestic being appear amidst an assembly of the most renowned monarchs of the world, how would their splendor be eclipsed and all their grandeur dwindle in the meanness? Before such an illustrious potentate of heaven, who would take notice of Caesar or bestow a look upon Alexander? So the righteousness of Christ, being the righteousness of him who lay in the bosom of the Father from eternity, the righteousness of him who now sits on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, this righteousness, being in itself most consummately perfect and unspeakably ennobled by the dignity of the performer, all other kinds, degrees, and forms of righteousness shrink before it into the littleness of pygmies, of worms, of mites. Could they speak, the language each would be, Look not upon me, for I am dim, yea, I am black. But look upon your Lord, for his works are marvelous, and he is glorious in his holiness. James Hervey, volume 4, 1750 A.D. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill, Matthew 5:17. As in Romans 8, 3, 4, here again we are informed concerning the great objectives before the Son of God in coming to this world. Having been, by his own free consent, made under the law, Galatians 4, 4, not only to undergo its penalty and bear its curse, but also to keep its precepts, parenthesis, which is the principal part of it, Christ himself here announces that he came to fulfill it. But the enemies of truth have struggled hard, though quite unsuccessfully, to evacuate the meaning of that important word. They have affirmed that this term fulfill simply means Christ filled out, or brought to light the hidden depths of the law's meaning, and revealed its searching holiness. But let it be duly noted that Christ here spoke of both the law and the prophets. Did he fill out them? No, he fulfilled them. Others say that Christ fulfilled the law in that he expounded it, which is contradicted by the whole tenor of his ministry. See particularly John 1.17. No, fulfill is here to be taken in its strict and obvious sense, just as he that loveth another has fulfilled the law, Romans 13.8, means he has met its requirements, he has kept its precepts. It is to be noted that Christ did not say, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, and the prophets, but the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. Two separate or distinct things were here predicated by Christ. Its obvious meaning was the Old Testament in all its parts and elements referred to himself and was accomplished by and in himself. Thus the law here stands for the whole Jewish law, parenthesis, including its types of sacrifices of the law, though having primarily refer reference to the moral law as is unmistakably clear from the next 27 verses. 
to obey its commands, to keep them in thought, word, and deed was a great end for which Christ became incarnate. This was man's duty, our duty, but we had failed to perform it. Therefore did Christ come and discharge it for us. In Matthew 5, 20, 42, Christ's main purpose was not to teach his people Christian ethics, parenthesis, that we have in the epistles, but to arouse a conscience of his legalistic hearers. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord expounded the law with the object of making men to see their need of a perfect righteousness. See Matthew 19:17, A righteousness which would fully meet the requirements of the thrice holy God, a righteousness in which his piercing eye could discern no flaw or blemish. It was ignorance of the law which was real source of Phariseeism, for they claimed to fulfill it in the outward letter. Therefore would Christ awaken their conscience by pressing his true inner import and exacting holy demands. It will be found that the sermon perpetually returns to one main thought applied with various modifications and peculiar terms to awaken in men a sense of their depravity to shut them up to the righteousness of God. See especially verses 28-44. Matthew 5.20 is the sum and substance of all that follows to the end of that chapter. What then is the righteousness they are spoken of? It is that justifying righteousness of God which fully meets the needs of the divinely convicted sinner. Its opening for plainly points back to verse 17. That righteousness which exceeded the punctilious outward performances of the scribes and Pharisees is what the incarnate Son of God, acting as a surety of his people, vicariously wrought out of for them, and which upon their believing is imputed to them, so that the flawless obedience of Christ to the whole will of God is reckoned to their account in such a way that they are legally regarded as having perfectly fulfilled the law in their own persons. God did not recede from his rights, but enforced them. The law has been fulfilled by our sponsor, and the transcendent merits of the just. Acts 3.14 are transferred to each of those for whom he acted. This is the best robe with which the returning prodigal is clothed. This is the court dress which fits the king's palace. Thus can every true Christian not only say, The blood of Christ has cleansed me from all sin, but also in the Lord have I righteousness, Isaiah 45:24. Hallelujah. Much more remains yet to be said, but we must leave it for the next chapter. Chapter 17, The Atonement, Its Results, Righteousness Continued. In our last chapter, we sought to show that in order to the justification of his people, God required from Christ something more than a sacrifice which would blot out their sins. It has been rightly said that there are few questions of more importance than the one which has reference to the way in which a sinner becomes perfectly righteous before God. If he be not completely righteous, he cannot enter heaven. J.C. Carson when man fell from his sinless condition, he was no more able to procure for himself a righteousness which would meet the inflexible demands of God's justice and holiness than he could eradicate the sinful nature which now vitates all his faculties. His only hope lay in a substitution who was able both to keep the law for him and to suffer the penalty for his breach of it. Both of these were indispensable if sinners were to be saved from hell and given a valid title to heaven. If thou wilt enter into life, Keep the commandments, Matthew 19:17. Life is not to be obtained unless all is done that the law requires. It must be kept either by us or our surety. There is the same need of Christ obeying the law in our stead 
in order to the reward as of his suffering the penalty of the law in our stead to our escaping the penalty and the same reason why one should be accepted on our account as the other. This is certain that that was the reason why there was need that Christ should suffer the penalty for us even that the law might be answered for this the scripture plainly teaches. This is given as a reason why Christ was made a curse for us that the law is threatening a curse to us Galatians 3:10-13 But the same law that fixes the curse of God as a consequence of not continuing in all things written in the law to do them verse 10 has as much fixed doing those things as an antecedent of living in them verse 12 there is as much of a connection established in one place as in the other we have not eternal life merely on the account of being void of guilt but on account of Christ's activeness in obedience and doing well. Jonathan Edwards, volume 4, page 92. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, Romans 1, 16, 17. It is indeed pitiable to discover the evasive subterfuges to which men have resorted in their unworthy effort to rob the gospel of its distinguishing glory. Many who ought to have known better, parenthesis, some we fear did, defined this expression as God's method of justifying sinners. That the gospel reveals the consummate wisdom of God in devastating a way whereby all his attributes are illustriously displayed in the savings of his people is perfectly true. That the gospel exhibits the perfect consistency between the grace and righteousness of God, his mercy and justice, is a most blessed fact. Yet this is not at all the meaning of that expression, the righteousness of God. Let such a definition be applied to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and its fallacies at once exposed. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made God's method of justification in him. The righteousness of God. This is one of the most important expressions in the scripture. It frequently occurs both in the Old Testament and the New. It stands connected with the argument now the first five chapters to the Roman epistle and signifies the fulfillment of the law which God has provided by the imputation of what sinners are saved written by Robert Haldine we are bold to affirm that the competency or incompetency of a man to expound the epistles to the Romans largely turns on his understanding this key expression if he errs in his apprehension of the righteousness of God his whole scheme of interpretation is bound to be faulty and erroneous. Nor can any man fully preach the gospel so as to exalt Christ as he ought to be exalted while he fails to unfold the blessedness of this vitally important term. Nor can any believer be fully established in the faith, nor is he capable of rendering to God that praise which is his due while he remains ignorant of what is meant by even the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Romans 3.22 what, then, is meant by this expression? The righteousness of God is that perfect conformity to the divine law in heart and life, which the holiness of God requires, which the grace of God has provided, which the incarnate Son of God has wrought, and which the justice of God imputes to everyone that believes. Let us enlarge upon this statement. First, the righteousness of God is that perfect conformity to the law in heart and life, which the holiness of God requires. 
God cannot relinquish his rights nor recede from his just claims. For him to set aside the demands of the law for full obedience to it would be as much as saying he had given a law which was not holy and just and good, Romans 7.12. This could never be. Divine love gave the law. Divine wisdom drew it up. Divine justice requires a perfect performance of it. Therefore, second, divine grace provided a satisfaction unto the righteous claims. Unfallen man failed to keep it. Fallen man cannot keep it. So the God-man, forever by be his name praised, came here to keep it in the stead of and on behalf of his people. It was by special divine constitution that Christ became subject to the law. Men are born under the law as natural descendants of Adam. But not so the Lord Jesus Christ. As his humanity was produced in a supernatural manner, parenthesis, that is not according to the settled order of nature, but by the intervention and power of the Holy Spirit, so he was made under the law, Galatians 4.4, by a special divine appointment. Christ is man by virtue of the personal union of his manhood with the second person of the Godhead was raised high above the condition and state of mere creature. Being found in a fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, Philippians 2.8. He was under no personal obligation to the law, but voluntarily placed himself under it that he might work out for his people a perfect and vicarious righteousness. May our hearts truly be drawn out to him in profoundest admiration and adoration for such an amazing condescension. The unremitting and perfect obedience which Christ rendered unto the law proceeded from his supreme love to God and unfeigned affection to men. His delight in God was conspicuous even from his early years. His sacred solemnities of a sanctuary were more engaging to his youthful mind than all the entertainment of a festival. When he entered upon his ministry, whole nights were not too long for his copious devotion. The lonely retirement of the desert as affording undisturbed communion with God were more desirable to Christ than the applause of an admiring world. So ceaseless and transcendent was his love to God that he never sought any separate pleasure of his own, but always did those things which were pleasing in his father's sight. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business was the rule of his childhood and the leading maxim of his whole life. In doing this, he was absolutely indefatigable. It was his meat and drink, refreshing as the richest food, delightful as royal dainties, to finish the work that was given him to do. John 4.34 how wakeful and jealous was his concern for the divine honor. I hear the vilest reproaches cast upon his own character. I see the most horrible indignities possible to his own person. Yet no resentful emotion reddened in his cheeks, nor one angry syllable starts from his mouth. But when mercenary wrenches profaned the temple and turned his father's house into a den of thieves, then his bosom throbs with zeal, then he makes his tongue like a sharp sword, and having first severely rebuked, afterwards resolutely expels the sacrilegious intruders. Indeed, his seal for the house of the Lord and for the purity of his ordinances is represented by the evangelical historian as eating him up, John 2.17. Like a heavenly flame glowing in his breast, it sometimes fired him with a graceful indignation, sometimes meddled him to godly sorrow, always broke forth and exerted itself in a variety of vigorous efforts until it even consumed his vital spirit. Who can declare the charity of Jesus Christ? It was ardent, it was unintermitted, it was unbounded. 
though always serene and serious, he was never solemnly grave. His conversation was affability itself, and the law of kindliness dwelt on his lips. What fretted and chagrined the disciples made not the least ruffling impression on their Lord. The rude and troublesome behavior of some, the weak and impertinent talk of others, served only to display the unaudible mildness of his temper. Nothing could embitter his spirit. Even the wicked and unthankful were partakers, ample partakers of his benevolence. Whoever applied to him in vain, when did he dismiss any needy petitioner without the desired blessing? What heavy burden did he not unloose? What effective evil did he not relieve? He even took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Matthew 8:17. In all their afflictions he was afflicted. He not only relieved when his aid was implored, but anticipated the expectations of the distressed. He went about doing good, Acts 10:38, seeking the afflicted and offering his assistance. With great fatigue, John 4, 6, he traveled to remote cities with no less condescension. He visited the meanest villages that all might have the honor and benefit of his healing presence and heavenly instructions. He gave sight to the blind, health to the diseased. He delivered the wretched soul from the dominion of darkness and from the tyranny of sin. He made his followers partakers of a divine nature and prepared them for a state of never-ending bliss. Nor were those righteous acts his strange work, but his repeated, his hourly, his almost incessant employee. When ridiculed and affronted, he kindly bored and kindly overlooked the insult. When contradicted by petulant and presumptuous sinners, he endured with the utmost serenity of temper their unreasonable cables and their obstinate perverseness. When his bloody sweat tinged the stones, when his bitter cries pierced the clouds, and were enough to awaken the very rocks into compassion, his disciples slept stupidly and repeatedly slept. But did their divine but slighted master resent that unkindness? Did he refuse to admit an excuse for their disobedience and neglect? Nay, he made their excuse, and that was the most tender and gracious imaginable. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26:41. When his enemies had nailed him to the cross as the basis slave, and most this malefactor, when they were glutting their malice with his sorrows, his torments, and his blood, nay, when they spared not to insult and revile him, even in his last expiring agony, far, very far from being exasperated, this hero of heaven repaid all their contempt and barbarity with the most fervent supplications in their behalf. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23:34 was his plea. Divine, adorable compassion. James Hervey. Now, as the Christian bows in admiration and adoration before the Holy Spirit's description of the exquisitely lovely ways of our Lord, let him not miss that which is most evangelical of all in the four evangelists, namely, that the perfect life of Christ was not only nor even primarily a pattern for our imitation, but was also and supremely in order to our justification. To present to a ruined and impotent creature the flawless life of the Holy One of God is no glad tidings, but, as another has said, only a consummate copy for a withered hand to transcribe. But, O oh, my brethren, when our faith is enabled to lay hold of the blissful fact that, from Bethlehem to Calvary, 
Christ acted as our surety and representative, that by all he did he wrought out for us a perfect righteousness, which in the construction and judgment of the law is really ours, that God himself imputes that righteousness to us and will forever deal with us according to his deserts. Then we behold the light of the glorious gospel and enter into the unsearchable riches of Christ. And is this righteousness designed for us? Is this to be our wedding dress? This our beautiful array when we enter the regions of eternity? Unspeakable privilege. Is this what God has provided to more than supply our loss in Adam, boundless benignity? Shall we be treated by the judge of all the world as if we had performed all the unsinning and perfect obedience? Well might the prophet cry out like one in astonishment, How great is his goodness! How great indeed, since all that the Lord Jesus did and suffered was doing and suffering for us men and our salvation is imputed to us for righteousness and is the sole and infinitely sufficient cause of our justification. Is not your heart enamored with a view of this incomprehensibly rich grace? What so excellent, what so comfortable, what so desirable as this gift of a Savior's righteousness? Though delineated by this feeble pen, methinks it has dignity and glory enough to captivate our hearts and fire our affections Fire them with ardent and inextinguishable desire for our personal interest and propriety in it. Oh, may the eternal Spirit reveal our Redeemer's righteousness in all its heavenly beauty and divine luster. Then I am persuaded we shall esteem it above everything. We shall regard it as the one thing needful. We shall count all things in comparison of it worthless as the chaff empty as the wind. James Hervey it is that perfect obedience which Christ rendered to God, his absolute conformity to the law which makes him competent to save. Thus saith the Lord God, he shall justify many. On what considerations? Why this? Because he is my righteous servant. Isaiah 53:11. It is because of his perfect obedience in life and in death that Judah shall be saved from eternal damnation, and Israel shall dwell safely. Having been given an indefensible title to life and glory, for it is on this very account, namely, that God raised unto David a righteous branch, and that he is owned as the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. It is this which renders his intercession so prevalent. He is an advocate, a successful advocate with the Father. Why? Because he is Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. Has the Lord Jesus risen on his people with healing in his wings? It is because he is the Son of Righteousness, Malachi 4.2. So various, so efficacious, so extensive are his beneficent influences that like a son, parenthesis, the monarch of the material creation, he enlightens and enlivens like wings. He cherishes and protects like an all-powerful remedy. He heals and restores. All this by virtue of his righteousness. Pitiable indeed, though perhaps needful it is, that we should now turn away from this glorious object and briefly look at some of the object, objections which a carping unbelief has brought against it. Not a few who have been looked upon as exceptionally able students of the word have dogmatically affirmed that the righteousness of Christ is an expression of human invention and is nowhere to found, be found in Holy Scriptures. It is sufficient refutation to quote Second Peter 1.1 1, 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, 
This inspired sentence is the key to all those texts in the New Testament and many in the Old which mention the righteousness of God. It is not the essential righteousness of an absolute God, but the vicarious righteousness of an incarnate God. Just as the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28, means and can only mean that the church of God who became incarnate, the church of Jesus Christ. It has been objected that God would have been unjust to require Christ to perfectly obey the law after having done so, inflict upon him the penalty which the law enforces upon the disobedient. Such an objection had held good if Christ acted only in the capacity of a private person, that is, as a single or isolated individual. But he did not. He came here as the federal head of his people, Romans 5.14, last clause, 1 Corinthians 15.45.47. Made with them, Hebrew 2.11.14. To say that the law requires no man to obey and die too is spacious reasoning quite beside the pointed issue. The real question is, did the law require a transgressor to obey and die? There is a twofold debt which sinners owe to God as creatures perfect obedience to the law as criminals liability to suffering as punishment. The claims of the law cannot be relaxed at either point. In coming here as the sponsor of his people, Christ assumed all their debts and discharged their full responsibilities both as creatures and criminals. It needs to be steadily borne in mind that Christ was made under Galatians 4, 4, a broken law, and consequently under its curse, therefore justice required that he should not only fulfill his precepts, but suffer its penalty. Had the surety died only, he had delivered us from punishment that, that would not have afforded no claim to life, no title to the reward, Romans 10:5. Scripture declares of the divine commands that in keeping of them there is a great reward, Psalm 19:11 but it nowhere affirms that in the undergoing their cursed there is the same reward. God's elect, fallen Adam, need not only needed to be made negatively guiltless, but positively rightless. To reign in life, Romans 5.15, to be entitled to the crown, 2 Timothy 4.8, required the obedience of Christ to be imputed to us. Just as in sanctification there is both the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man, Ephesians 4, 24 so the divine sentence of justification proceeds on the double basis that there is no condemnation resting upon those in Christ, and also that his righteousness has been imputed to their account, Romans 4.11. Romans 4.25 unites the two. Christ was delivered to death for our offenses or remissions, and was raised again for our justification righteousness. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord, Isaiah 54:17. John Bunyan, in the account which he gave of the Lord's dealings with him, recorded with artless simplicity the establishment of his soul in the most glorious truth. Now I saw that Christ Jesus was looked upon by God, and should be looked upon by us as a common or public person, in whom all the whole body of his elect are always to be considered and reckoned, that we fulfilled the law by him, died by him, rose from the dead by him, got the victory over sin, death, and the devil and hell by him. When he died, we died, and so of his resurrection. Grace abounding. May it please the Lord to grant such a like precious faith unto many readers of this book. 
To have the heart established in this blessed truth is worth infinitely more than the riches, honors, pleasures of this perishing world. Let us return now to the objections which Satan has moved men to make against this precious truth. One of the favorite arguments of the Romanists against the teachings of reformers upon this subject was, if God has transferred the righteousness of Christ to believers, then they are sinless, holy, righteous in their own persons, as righteous as Christ is righteous. But this is the confounding of things that differ. The saints of God may be considered either as to what they still are in themselves or as justified in Christ. That this distinction is not of human invention is capable of being established from many scriptures. Take one passage only from either testament. I am black but calmly, Song of Solomon 1.5. Yes, blacken myself as a fallen descendant of Adam, and such I continue to the end of my earthly course, but calmly as I am in Christ, Colossians 2.10. Purge out therefore all the leaven that you may be, parenthesis, experimentally, a new lump as you are, parenthesis, judicially in Christ, unleavened. 1 Corinthians 5.7. They who make not this distinction are ignorant of the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians 6.19. Others have objected, though it is not likely many will echo it in these days of lawlessness, that if Christ had fully kept the law for his people, then they are freed from all obligation to personally keep it. The answer is true. God does not require his people to keep the law from the same ends and upon the same accounts that Christ fulfilled it, namely to satisfy divine justice and purchase the title to everlasting life and an inheritance in heaven. But for other ends, God does require his people to obey the law, namely as creatures in subjection to his holy will and out of loving gratitude for all he has done for them. Christ kept the law to earn eternal life for us, carefully ponder Romans 5.21, 1 John 4.9. Christians are to keep it from a desire to please Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14:15. nor do we have to keep the law by our own power. In the Lord have our righteousness and strength, Isaiah 45:24. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.